Good morning, friends. I'm back from a a great week of teaching, teaching the Book of Acts down at Angola Prison in Louisiana. It's always good to be back, and um, I'm going to be recording this one today from the friendly confines back here in Branson, Missouri, but I'll actually be on the road uh, preaching in uh, Springfield, Missouri next week, uh, the following week in uh, back at Lord of Life in northern Illinois, and the week after that in Texas. And those messages will also be available. You know, I preach a lot of sermons, and I got to tell you, only once or twice has anyone actually ever interrupted the sermon. Uh, once just to stand up and ask a question. The other time, I'm not quite sure what it was all about. <laughs> but, you know, as troublesome and as frightening as interruptions can be, they do serve one good purpose. They tell us that someone was listening. And if a person cares enough to interrupt the pastor, he or she must have been paying very close attention to what was being said. And that's always good news, especially when many people struggle to stay awake during the sermon. It appears that something like a sermon interruption happened on three different occasions in the book of Acts. And that's what I'm going to talk about today, the amazing power of the gospel. And it's going to be based on Acts chapter 17, verses 32 to 34. We know that when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he was interrupted by an outburst from the audience. In a sense, Peter preached the message and the congregation gave the invitation. In a much different setting, Stephen preached to the Sanhedrin and indicted them as stiff-necked and uncircumcised for always resisting God and for their complicity in the death of Jesus. Luke tells us that the Jewish leaders responded by gnashing their teeth, dragging him outside the city, and stoning him to death. The final sermon interruption in Acts occurs as Paul comes to the climax of his sermon on Mars Hill. It happens when he declares that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Up to that point, the sophisticated Athenians had listened with at least polite interest, but this was far more than they could bear. They most assuredly did not believe in the resurrection in any sense at all. This proved conclusively that Paul was indeed the ignorant seed picker that they called him, Um, You can read that in chapter 17, verse 18. Well, Luke tells us how the men of Athens responded to Paul's message in four brief verses. It goes as follows. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, I want you to note the three responses to Paul's message. The first one is derision. I mean, some people mocked his talk of a resurrection. The very idea was incredible and even repulsive to the Greeks. They believed in the immortality of the soul, but not of the body. They thought that the body just disintegrated in the grave while the soul lived on in some other realm. To them, the notion of a bodily resurrection was crazy. I mean, why would you want your body back when you could soar through the air without it? The second reaction was delay. They said, we'll hear you again on this matter. And evidently, these hearers were open-minded enough to desire a second exposure to Paul's preaching. They weren't ready to buy into his message, but they didn't want to reject it out of hand. Now, many people in the world fit into this category. They, They just need time to process the message and make it their own. They must weigh what they have heard and chew it over in their own minds. This isn't necessarily a bad sign, 
Perhaps we should ask how many of us responded to the gospel the very first time we heard it. Most of us needed to hear about Jesus more than once before we were ready to follow him. It was the same in Paul's day. The third reaction was decision. Luke tells us that a few joined themselves to Paul, meaning they committed themselves to both to him and to his message of the gospel. And Luke specifically names two of them. One is Dionysius the Areopagite. His title means he was one of twelve leading men who made up the Areopagus that met on Mars Hill. Obviously, he was a man of much influence. For him to follow Jesus would be like a Supreme Court justice going forward at a Billy Graham crusade. Many others would be favorably inclined to Christianity because of his example. Early traditions suggest that he went on to become the first bishop of Athens. Luke also mentions Damaris, which is a female name. Now, this is fascinating because women normally weren't allowed to join the discussions on Mars Hill. She must have been a woman of some note because Luke singles her out. The sum of Paul's ministry is not very large or very impressive. I mean, two people by name, plus a few others unnamed. We aren't even told that a church was started in Athens. Perhaps there weren't enough converts to start a church. Now, if I stand back and ask what strikes me about the text, I am mostly impressed by the sermon Paul preached, rather than by the response. Luke takes quite a few verses to record the message with what might be considered a disappointing response from the cultured men of Athens. But therein lies a most important truth. The preaching of the gospel has never been attended with universal success, especially in what might be called pioneer mission work. Generally speaking, when the gospel penetrates a society, there will be a long period of sowing the seed before the harvest finally comes in. Now, like me, maybe you've heard stories about missionaries who labored in India or Pakistan or the Middle Eastern countries for 40 years with only a handful of converts. The fact is, those stories are almost always true. That's the way it was in the beginning. It's not hard to understand why this must be so. I mean, the gospel is a radical message that runs counter to everything most people believe. It presumes a certain view of God, a certain view of humanity, and a certain view of Jesus. And it demands a total change of mind and complete faith in Jesus. And this isn't easy for most people to comprehend. Now, several months ago, someone asked me a seemingly simple question. The question was this, just what is a Christian? You know, that's easier said than done because so many people think in terms of baptism, church membership, uh, going to mass, or participating in other religious rituals. Now, before you can get to the right answer, you've got to sweep away all the wrong answers. I would define a Christian as a person who accepts the Bible as the Word of God, and based on what the Bible says, has a living relationship with Jesus through wholehearted trust in Him as Lord and Savior. Now, that definition may seem unduly complicated, and perhaps it is, but I think we need to move beyond the just say a prayer and you go to heaven mentality. Saying a prayer at the end of worship service is good. But you must know to whom you are praying and what words of your what your words of your prayer really mean. If you don't know that, you're just mouthing words, but nothing else has changed. And worst of all, you end up thinking you're a Christian when you may not be a Christian at all. Have you ever considered how radical it is to become a Christian? It's not an easy step to take because it means rejecting the world's entire way of thinking. 
The world entices you to believe that there is no God, or if there is a God, he really doesn't matter. But to become a Christian means believing that there is a God in heaven who demands the first place in your heart. The world wants you to think that you're okay just the way you are, but Christianity teaches you that you aren't okay, and that you're a sinner, desperate, in need of God's grace. But to experience God's grace, you must turn away from all trust in yourself. In fact, you must renounce self-trust and transfer your trust to Jesus wholly and completely. And that means believing that after this life is over, everyone will live forever, either in heaven or hell. Now, let's get back to the question about what is a Christian. Now, in answering this, I commented that many people have what I call a Mount Rushmore religion as a way of covering their bets. See, when they look up, they see Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and Moses and who knows, maybe Michael Jordan and Elvis Presley. They figure that if Jesus is up there somewhere, they're going to be all right. But, you know, they're badly mistaken. Jesus will not share his glory he must be worshipped as the one and only way to heaven. Perhaps the <clears throat> most remarkable thing you must believe is that a man came back from the dead. That's what ended Paul's sermon abruptly. These intellectual Athenians were quite happy to listen to Paul's discourse on the true God. Even if they didn't agree, they found his ideas fascinating. But to hear him declare that God had raised Jesus from the dead, well, that was preposterous. It was nonsense. It was ridiculous. They had no room for that idea, and then a uh, modern man has no use for it today. On a purely human level, I understand fully why the Greeks wanted nothing to do with the idea of a resurrection. I mean, why should anyone believe such a bizarre notion? Well, the answer is simple. God has already demonstrated his power when he raised his son from the dead. Now, if God can do that, he can raise from the dead all those who follow his son. The question of the resurrection isn't a how, but a who. If you know Jesus, you can rest assured that your body will be raised in the last day, and you can rest well, not worrying about the precise details of how it will happen. We should not be surprised that Paul's sermon elicited varying responses. True gospel preaching always divides. Jesus himself said, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. That's recorded in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. Now, many of you may have experienced the sobering truth of these words. It's not unusual for one spouse to follow Jesus and another to be unsaved. Sadly, we often see children who love Jesus while their parents are uninterested. Your loved ones may also be your spiritual enemies because they do not share your faith in Jesus. Now, I have two points to make in saying this. One is we shouldn't be surprised when our own witnessing brings a variety of responses. Some will laugh it off. Others will attack us. Some will want to think about it, and a few will believe and be saved. That's the biblical pattern. And second, we ought to remember that God's timing and ours are often quite different. We naturally want to see people come to Jesus now, if not yesterday. But if we know anything about God, it's that he works from the standpoint of eternity. Think of it this way. When Paul walked away from Athens, he could have regarded himself as a failure. Yet we know that a vibrant church eventually sprang up there, and that church has continued in various forms across 2,000 years to this very day. He couldn't have known that back then, 
but God did, because he moves across the generations and the centuries to accomplish his purpose. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11 ought to encourage us. It reads, As the the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed from the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. This is one of many places in the Bible where spreading the good news is compared to sowing seed into the soil. God's word is the seed, and we are the sowers, and the soil is the human heart. God has called us to spread the seed everywhere by every possible means. We do the planting, and God gives the harvest in his own time and in his own way. Isaiah 55:11 reminds us that nothing is ever wasted with God. His word always accomplishes its divinely ordained purpose. Our job is to sow the seed. His job is to bring in the harvest. If we do our part, God cannot fail to do his. Now, as we wrap up, let's consider four lessons from the response to Paul's teaching in Athens. Here's lesson number one. Some people will always stumble over the big issues. In Athens, the big issue was the resurrection. They just couldn't believe it. Sometimes the big issue is believing what the Bible says. Some people argue about God, the Creator, or the Trinity, or if Jesus is the only way to heaven. Sometimes people don't believe in heaven or hell. Often unbelievers can accept that they're sinners desperately in need of God's grace. They certainly don't like to be told that they're unable to save themselves and that they must trust in Jesus alone for salvation. My point is this. The gospel will never be universally popular, but we are commanded to preach it anyway. Don't expect everyone to cheer you on, and don't be surprised when some laugh in your face. There's nothing to be done about it except to smile and find someone else who will listen. Here's lesson number two. Others will always need more time. Now, I know that delay can be dangerous in the spiritual realm, but not everyone can make an impulsive decision to follow Jesus. Often folks just need more time to sort things out in their own minds. Remember, friends, when you plant seeds in the ground, the harvest doesn't spring up the next day. You've got to water and weed and wait. It's the same in the spiritual realm. Lesson number three, God often calls people to Jesus from very unlikely places. The story of Dionysius and Damaris ought to encourage us. Even though most of the people didn't become Christians that day, Paul did snag a pretty big fish when he got Dionysius. The same was with Damaris. I mean, even though he only caught a few fish, these two made it worth the trip. I mean, he ended up with a bishop and the head of women's ministries. And friends, something I've learned. If we can't find a way to speak the gospel in a way that they can understand, how will they ever hear the gospel at all? That leads me to one final principle that should guide all of our evangelistic efforts. And that's lesson number four. We must seize the moment, find a common ground with unbelievers, speak their language, and boldly call sinners to repentance. Now, Paul did all of this in Athens. He started by witnessing in the marketplace, and then he preached on Mars Hill and began his sermon by referring to their altar to an unknown God. He even quoted some of their poets in Acts 17.28. Everything in his message was calculated to reach a highly educated Greek audience. And he ended with a strong presentation of the gospel a call to personal repentance, and a warning of future judgment. 
Paul looked for teachable moments to share the gospel in a language the people could understand. Now, in the truest sense, we're all called as missionaries, only most of us are cleverly disguised as something else. Uh, you might be a carpenter, a nurse, a physician, a pharmacist, a teacher, a, an executive, a doctor, a writer, a police officer, salesperson, but that's just your job. It's how you make your money, but it's not your calling in life. If you are a Christ follower, God has called you to be a missionary who's cleverly disguised as something else. One final question. Was Paul a failure in Athens? Now, many people read this story and would say, yeah, yeah, I, I would guess so. And as far as we know, Paul never founded a church in Athens. He left town knowing that most of the people who heard him on Mars Hill either laughed at him or ignored him. And only a few became believers. But did he fail? Well, it all depends on how you define failure. If you mean in terms of winning large numbers of instant converts, the answer is yes, he failed. But I ask another question. Was he faithful to do what God called him to do? Well, we know the answer is yes, because he went to Athens and he preached the gospel. If he did what God wanted him to do, how could he possibly be a failure? Now, here is some very good news for all of us. Just do what God has called us, called you to do. Don't worry about what everyone else is doing, and don't play the silly comparison game. Be faithful to God and let him take care of the results. Now, it's true that when Paul left Athens, he had little to show outwardly for his labors in that great city. There was a handful of converts and nothing else. But from the standpoint of 2,000-plus years, we may add these results. One, he left a city having altered its spiritual condition forever. By his faithful preaching, he introduced the gospel to the people of Athens. That means he had increased their spiritual responsibility a hundredfold. Before Paul, the men of Athens could justly say that they had never heard of Jesus. Never again could they plead ignorance. It would be a thousand times better for Paul not to have come than for those people who heard him to ignore his message. You see, the more light you receive, the greater your accountability in the day of judgment. And second, he left the city with a new confidence in the Christian message. Heretofore, the gospel had succeeded in smaller towns and provincial capitals. But Paul proved that the message of Jesus could stand on its own in the intellectual capital of the world. If it won converts there, it could win them anywhere. This ought to give us great hope at the places we live, both large and small. When Paul preached where Plato had taught, he established forever that the gospel belongs in every stratum of human society. Even Athens needed the gospel, and even in Athens, God has his people ready to respond. Father, we thank you that the gospel is truly the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Give us the desire to share the gospel with those we meet. Make us bold in the face of opposition. Grant us an eternal perspective so that we will not be discouraged when the results seem to be small. Help us to see that even one life saved is a miracle that will last forever. Help us to find common ground with unbelievers so that through our witness, many people will come to faith in Jesus. We pray to do our part, knowing that if we do what you have asked us to do, you cannot fail to do what you have promised. So, let the gospel go forth with life-changing power from where we live to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.